We talk a lot here at Christ Church Vienna about the Christian life, how to live the life God has called us to. So we talk about things like cultivating a Christian worldview, about establishing God's authority in our life so that that's how we interpret the world. But if I was to put simply, put very simply, what does it mean to live the Christian life? I would ask this question of myself. Is my heart aligned with God's heart? Is my heart aligned with God's? Because I need to be able to ask the sort of question that is not based on something like this. Am I happy? Life is not primarily about am I happy, but about am I faithful? How does God want me to love and serve him? Life is not about what do I deserve, but what does God want in my life? And if we ask that question, what does God want, we need to answer the question, what is, or answer the question, what is God's heart for? What does God have a heart for? When we look through the Old Testament, many people read the Old Testament looking for rules to follow. But the Old Testament is not primarily about rules to follow. But through those rules and laws and even histories and psalms and poetry, it is a description of God's heart. So regardless of where we're reading in Scripture, we can get to God's heart. And one of the things you see again and again as you read through God's word, the Old Testament, which we read this morning, is God's heart is bent towards the vulnerable and the poor and the powerless. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at wealth and poverty, trying to cultivate a biblical theology of God's heart for our money and our resources and God's heart for the poor and how they are supposed to align. When we looked two weeks ago at the law of God, which was God's commandment and covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai that laid out his relationship with the people of Israel, it includes the Ten Commandments and all the things they're supposed to do for sacrifices and all these things. It was basically expectations on the nation that was to align the, the life of Israel with God's heart. And we see God's heart even in very strange things like allotment of land. You would think that real estate law would have nothing to do with God's heart, but in the Bible it does. As God lays out his 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 covenant with Israel, he says, when you enter the promised land, the land that I am giving you, this is how you are to divide, to divide up the land. And it was set up so that every, every tribe of Israel, the 12 big clans of Israel, would each have a plot of land. And it would be subdivided into each smaller clan until every family unit had a plot of land. And that was because in that ancient world, land was your source of wealth. It was your source of sustenance and of survival. And basically, from the beginning, God says, I want every family to have an equal start. I want every one of you to be able to survive. And then within the law, he codes law that says there will be an equal rule of law for all people. No favoritism for the, for the rich. No favoritism for the higher up socially. That there would be rule of law for all people. And God said, I want to bless all of you. I want you to experience prosperity and wealth in this land. But knowing that that would not always be possible, just in the give and take of life, he also provided and called Israel to generosity. 
In the law, he calls them to glean, to allow for gleaning of the fields. Gleaning of the fields, we talked about this two weeks ago, was you had a plot of land and you harvested the land, but you were supposed to not harvest the corners of the land so that the poorest of the poor who had lost their land or those who were foreigners or orphans could come and harvest for themselves to get a little bit of grain for themselves so that they didn't starve to death. Within the law of Moses that God had given, he also called them to to observe the Sabbath. And we talked about how the Sabbath was an opportunity once a week to worship God, but it was also an opportunity for the poorest who were day laborers, who had to maybe indenture themselves as servants to get a day off. It was economic rest for the weary. And then as I also mentioned two weeks ago as we talked about the law, God put in this this law called the, the year of Jubilee that every 50th year, in Israel, all debts were supposed to be wiped out. All your credit card debt, your student loans, everything wiped out, and you started over again. And on top of that, the land that you used to have, that maybe you had to sell off, was supposed to be restored to you. Basically, at least once in your lifetime, you would get a fair and equal start. He wanted to level the playing field for all of his people. And on top of the generosity, he also called for justice. In Deuteronomy 27, 19, he's very clear. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you hear something like this, you need to ask, why does he need to say that? He needs to say it because the natural assumption was if you had power, if you were a patriarch, if you were in a position of authority, you had every right to pervert justice towards those who had no rights. The law of God like that is spoken into the ancient Near Eastern culture that was patriarchal and clan-based. An orphan, a widow, a foreigner had no rights because they had no land, and they were not patriarchs in a community. In the ancient Near Eastern world, kings and princes owned everything, and they doled out land uh, to, to one another at the expense of the masses. Laws in the ancient world favored kings, keeping them in power, and favored the powerful, keeping them powerful and richer. And the poor had no recourse but not in Israel. God's law said, this is not how it shall be in Israel. God called Israel to provide for and protect all the poor, all the powerless, even the foreign. And God's law was a reflection of God's heart. In Psalm 68 that we read responsibly with Corky, we get a description of God the God of the Bible. He is father of the fatherless, protector of widows is God in heaven. He settles the solitary in a home. No one is by themselves. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. If you read through the Old Testament, you will find that list of four names. It's the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner and the poor. The orphan and the widow and the foreigner, and anyone who is poor. It was the list of the most vulnerable and powerless in the ancient Near Eastern world. And God says, 
I love them. I want you to love them too. One Jesuit priest in the 60s coined the phrase, God's preferential option for the poor. A phrase that came to be associated with how God's heart is, is for all people. He loves all people. But he has deep, deep concern for the poorest, the most vulnerable, the ones who cannot fight for themselves. In a brutal and power-oriented world that that ancient world was, where the poor were especially vulnerable, the God of the Bible challenged every cultural norm and called his people, his particular people, to radical generosity and justice. And that's carried over to this day. In the West, we have built off of that assumption. Now, when it comes down to it, we probably agree, right? Generosity and justice are good things. But if I were to press into what I actually think, what you actually think, I would guess that not many of us are far from this idea, which is we want to help the poor. Those of us who have some means, we want to help and provide for the poor. But when we think about that, what we really want to do is help and provide for the good and the kind and the lovely poor. The ones who work hard, whose poverty isn't their fault, who did nothing to deserve what they've gotten into. And we want to be able to help them and for them to be thankful that we're helping them. Which, what's interesting if you read through God's law through the Old Testament, is that God's law makes no exception for the deserving poor versus the undeserving. It doesn't ask, why is he in debt? It simply says, every 50th year, you wipe away everything and restore everything. Not, well, it was his fault. It doesn't ask, whose fault is it that she's an orphan? It simply says, she's an orphan. And this was part of what the prophets, Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, Jeremiah, they came to declare to Israel how they had failed to live up to God's heart. You know, the prophets, I used to think of the reading the prophets as if they were fortune tellers. Like you read through these things like Malachi and Daniel to figure out what the future holds. But actually, that's not the primary role of the prophets in the Old Testament. The prophets were actually lawyers. They were prosecutors. They were prosecuting the law of Moses, the covenant. And they brought cases against God's people saying, here's the law and you are breaking it. And here's the judgment that will come on you for breaking it. They bring the case against Israel for failing to uphold God's law. And the two primary ways that Israel failed to uphold God's law, according to the prophets, were idolatry, worshiping something other than Yahweh, and injustice, which specifically was their relationship to the poor, to the father, fatherless, and the widow, and the sojourner. You know, in the 8th century, which was 100 or 200 years after King David, Israel began to increase more and more in wealth and prosperity. And they began to disregard God's law more and more. Each successive king controlled more and more power. 
and they maintained it for themselves and their fellow powerful people. Over the course of a hundred years or so, the richest people in Israel had more land, and the poorest had less. There was no more equal divisions. There was a growing disregard for the Sabbath, giving rest for your servants. There were people forgetting to allow for the gleaning of their fields. They would harvest everything. And the jubilee that once every 50 years all debts would be wiped out and lands returned was not being observed. Instead, the very rich became richer and the very poor became many more. Into that, the prophets speak. They bring their case. Amos writes in the 8th century about this very thing. In Amos 5, verses 11 and 12, which we read, the prosecutor Amos says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. They had broken God's law by disregarding the poor. And specifically, the end of verse 12, it says something about the gate, the needy in the gate, turned aside the needy at the gate. In an ancient city, the gate was the entryway in and out of the city, right? It was also the courtroom. It's where the patriarchs of the town of the city sat in order to judge cases. You would bring your case not to like a literal courtroom in Fairfax County, but to the city gate. And there the heads of the community would sit and decide cases. And he's saying, you are turning aside the needy at the gate. The ones who have no power come to you for justice and you turn them aside. Somebody has stolen your land? Get out of here. Case dismissed. I don't want to hear it. On top of this, according to chapter 8, they were trampling on the needy. Verse 4, 5, and 6, bringing the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell again and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. There was a rich, growing business class in Israel in that day and age. And part of that was tied to how fewer and fewer people had more and more of the land. And so the poor who had no land had no way to feed themselves unless they would go to the market to buy barley or wheat. But the very few poor, the very few rich who had all the land would harvest the barley and the wheat and only put a limited amount at market. And for those of you who are not economists, that's called the law of supply and demand. I know nothing else. <laughs> Except that's also collusion and price gouging. But it was okay. If there was less wheat, the price went up. If you controlled all the wheat, the price went up. You got richer, the poorer got poorer, and you got wealthy at the expense of the poor. And then God says, in verse 7 of chapter 8, one of the most damning things that God could ever say to anyone, surely I will never 
forget any of their deeds. God forbid that God ever say that to you or me. The gospel is the opposite of that. I will forgive all of your deeds. I will not forget what you have done, God says. This is the same vein in which Isaiah is proclaiming his prophecy in chapter 58 of Isaiah. Isaiah who preached and proclaimed and prophesied about the same time. In chapter 58, verse 3, he's citing Israel saying, why have we fasted, O God, and you have not seen it? You don't see what we're doing. Basically, fasting was depriving yourself of food as a way to worship God. They're saying, we're doing the religious things. We show up at church. We volunteer in the nursery. We're, we're observing the religious things we're supposed to do. Why aren't you answering our prayers, God? We're asking for things, and you're not answering them. We're doing all the right things. And God's response back is, you're doing the religious duty like fasting in order to get something from me. Not to seek me, to just know me. Because if you knew me, you would know my heart. And you would not ignore the poor or take advantage of the weak. A couple verses later, in verses 6 and 7, he lays it out very clearly. This is the religious duty I want from you. To loose the bonds, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, to clothe the naked. Break every yoke. A yoke was the barn, we've talked about this here before, that, that tied two, two plow animals together. It was a, a wooden bar that would go over the shoulders of one ox and the other ox would be right next to him and they would pull the wagon or the cart or the plow. It enabled the, the owner of the ox, the farmer, to be able to control them. And God says, break every yoke. It's an emphatic command. There's, there's four commands in a row there. It's loose the bonds, undo the straps, let the oppressed go free, and break every yoke. It's a yelling command. And what's interesting is he starts off saying undo the straps, so those people who are bound, the poor, the indebted, the, the enslaved, set them free. Undo the straps means let this ox go free. But break the yoke suggests that no ox will ever be bound again. It's not just let one person go free. It's let the systems of justice be such that no one can ever be enslaved again. God wants Israel to get at the root issues of injustice. In his 2016 book, Evicted, that I've cited a couple weeks ago, Matthew Desmond follows eight poor families in Milwaukee over the course of 2009 to 2011, and their challenges in and out of homes. One of those that he follows is Arlene, a young black mom who has two sons. In one of the chapters, she's being evicted from her ghetto apartment. 
And because she's, she's being evicted because she's $870 behind on rent, rent that costs $620 a month. And she's behind because she had to pay for her sister's funeral, a tragic death. And she missed a meeting with social workers, and so for a couple months in a row, she was getting less. And she decided to buy a couple presents for her kids at Christmas, and so on Christmas in one year, she was being evicted. According to the American Housing Study that ran between 91 and 2013, the poorest of the poor in America spend over 70% of their income on rent. Between a quarter and half of them spend 70% of their income on rent. And over the course of 2007 to 2010, as the housing market collapsed and housing prices and people's incomes went down and the housing prices continued to go up in the rental market, people became poorer and poorer and poorer. In fact, between 2007 and 2010, the average white American lost 11% of their overall wealth in four-year period. But if you were black, you lost 31% of your wealth. And if you were Hispanic, you lost 41% of your wealth. Arlene was being evicted, but as she was being evicted, a new lady was coming to take the tenancy in this beat-down, run-down ghetto apartment. Crystal was her name, and Crystal had empathy, and she said to Arlene and her sons, you don't have anywhere to go, you can stay with me, until you find a new place. Arlene looked and looked for a new place. One night she comes back home and there's Crystal in the house, her sons are there, and Crystal, the new tenant, who's now her kind of semi-landlord, says the woman upstairs is being beaten, abused by her boyfriend. You could hear it as they went to bed that night, just the thump, the thud, the cries. Crystal couldn't take it anymore. She went upstairs and beat on the door. Stop it! But no answer. So she called 911. The police came and found the beaten and abused woman the guy had taken off. But as a result of that phone call to 911, it was the third time the police had been called to that property in a month. Most cities have what are called nuisance violation ordinances. In Milwaukee, if a particular property had received three calls to 911 in the course of a month, they could be given a nuisance ordinance violation. This happened to the landlord of that property because that call to 911 for the woman being abused was the third call in the month. The landlord then decided to kick out both women she went in and forcefully had Arlene thrown out and told Crystal, the new tenant, she was starting eviction proceedings with her because she didn't want to deal with the police. It was by right and law that if you called the police or the ambulance three times in a month that the police could enact nuisance violation ordinances, but it was disproportionate in black neighborhoods compared to white. In white neighborhoods, one in 41 properties that could have been cited for a nuisance violation were actually cited by the police. But in black neighborhoods, it just was one in 16. Almost three times more likely just by being in a black neighborhood calling 911 
for the woman upstairs being beaten. That the police would bring an ordinance, cite the citation, and everyone would be kicked out by the landlord who didn't want to deal with the police. The question is this, is it possible that there are still root issues of injustice even in the US? Ones that we're called into in some way. Isaiah 58, in Isaiah 58, God contrasts what Israel is doing with what he really desires. I don't want you not fast, but feed is essentially what he says. You're denying yourself food fasting and saying, God, bless me, answer my prayers. God says, don't fast, not just fast, but feed. People are hungry, feed them. Stop denying yourself food to get something from me. Feed people, that's what I want from you. You be the answer to their prayers. You know, when we look at the Ten Commandments, we often look at them as a vice list of things to be avoided, and that's true. They are, literally. But as Jesus lays out and the New Testament pours out, there's so much more to each one of those commands. It's not just vices to be avoided, it's needs to be engaged, love to be actively poured out. In other words, the Fifth Commandment says, do not murder. It's not enough to say, well, I have not killed anyone this week. It's not even enough to say, I don't hate anyone. The call of that commandment is to provide for and protect all life. Fight for the vulnerable and the powerless. The sixth commandment says do not commit adultery. It's not enough to just say, I've not had sex with anyone who I was not married to, though that is true. That commandment calls men especially to uphold the dignity and worth of every woman to treat them with care and respect, not an object to be used. The seventh commandment says do not steal. And it's not enough just to say I have not stolen any money this week, not even some candy from 7-Eleven. But it's the call to give generously and freely to all in need, to see my money not as mine but as God's. What does God want from his people? He wants us to give of ourselves, of our time and our money and our connections and our voice and our involvement for the poor. Isaiah 58, 7 says, break your bread, basically. Share your bread. Open your house. Clothe people and don't look away from them. In other words, to engage God's heart is going to mean a loss to you and me. You will lose some of your bread if you're going to share some of your bread. You will lose some of your time and freedom if you open your home. It will cost you. But as one Old Testament scholar noted, the difference between the wicked and the righteous throughout the Old Testament, the difference between the wicked and the righteous is the wicked see their resources as belonging to them. The righteous willingly disadvantages themselves for the sake of the community. The wicked see their resources as belonging to them, and the righteous willingly disadvantage themselves for the sake of others. 
Why is that the case? Because that's exactly what God did for us. John 3.16, which is a summary of the gospel, is a direct parallel to all of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What is God's heart? God's heart involves giving. Giving of himself wholly, completely for you and me who are undeserving. When we follow suit, we find the life worth living. Michael Matheson Miller, in a talk at the Q Commons or Q uh, Ideas Conference said, human flourishing is living the way God intended us to live, not as I want necessarily. We are given ourselves, our very lives as a gift from God, and our end, our end, our purpose is to give ourselves back to God as a gift and to give ourselves for others. The heart aligned with God gives. I want to bring up three women to highlight one area of need and ways that they have been hearing God's call on them to give. So I'd like to invite Sasha Swanson and Tatiana Schultz and Christy Votto to come and help us to understand a little bit of one of the needs in our culture today, that of poverty related to foster care. I invite you guys to come over here, and I'm going to switch podiums with you guys. Um, okay. So we're going to have to come closer to this microphone. So come on up, everybody. So Sasha and Christy and Tatiana, I wanted to hear a little bit from uh, each of you and help you guys or have you guys help us to understand a little bit about the issue of foster care. And so specifically, um, can one of you tell us a little bit about the need uh, with regards to foster care in the U.S. or in Fairfax or something? I don't know. Sasha, maybe you could start. Go ahead. Sure. Um, just, Come up just, just statistically, yeah. um, as of last spring, there were 5,300 kids in care in Virginia. Mm -hmm. um, and as overwhelming as that is, and as each of us hear these powerful, mes powerful messages from up front, um, it doesn't necessarily mean we're all called into... Uh, foster care and adoption, but recently we um, we heard uh, a really cool uh, encouragement regarding being a part of something like this, and that is that each family that's in foster care need to thrive and for us to continue what we're doing and to do it well, we need about five families to come around us, supporting us and praying with us and um, and helping us and um, helping us process what we're going through. So. Um, would you agree with that, ladies? So I'd say there's so many ways um, to be a part of, of what the calling that we're hearing from up front. And so the idea of foster care is actually the U.S. years ago got rid of asylum centers like orphanages and instead moved into transitional housing where kids who were in broken homes of some sort or were missing parents, um, they were put in with foster parents who would transition them maybe to adoption or something else like that. Is that, is that right? What are some of the, any of you, um, just what are some of the uh, home situations that lead kids to become uh, put into the foster care system? Still mine. Sure. <laughs> um, I would say brokenness, which um, all of you are acquainted with the brokenness around, in and around our communities. Um, uh, the beauty of being acquainted with grief 
um, um, is that we are so invited into communion with Christ, right? So um, I would say that we have been introduced to uh, situations and families um, that we have the opportunity to love on incredibly and um, I said last time I was up here that the kids are the kids are the gift. The kids are the easy part. It's uh, their it's their mothers and fathers that um, we are called to love well and um, to treat as Johnny's been talking about as the sojourner. Um, I just um, we had a nasty situation last night that involved the police with Taylor's father. And this morning I read as I was thinking about him. Um, I read, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. And I um, just was thinking so much about being in communion with the Father when we understand that kind of grief and when we see people's deepest need and um, there's poverty in each of us, and I think uh, being acquainted with, with this has um, invited us into sweet communion with Jesus. I'm sure these ladies can testify to that as well. And, go ahead, Kristen. Yeah, I mean, for us, our personal experience with that was some of the issues that we came across were addiction in the family of our foster son and domestic abuse and things, obviously, that he just saw when he was very young that he didn't need to be around that also exposed our family to other things and kind of like Sasha said the opportunity to build relationships with his parents as well as his extended family and to continue those relationships even after he's back with his family which he is right now he's with his grandparents but to continue in um just building that bond as as his life continues to go on and also in praying for the parents and loving them and meeting them where they're at and knowing that there isn't a resolution for them yet you know like that's there's still the addiction going on and there's still other things going on and still praying for them and loving them through that and trusting god in that situation and so uh just to, for those of you who don't know christy and corey botto have fostered uh lucas and sasha and peter swanson have uh fostered taylor um Tatiana, you and John Schultz, why don't you come up here, and you guys have not fostered anyone, but you stepped into this process of just trying to maybe get, I don't know, certified, approved, something like that, uh, sometime in the past year. Mm -hmm. What have been some of the things going through your head or John's or that made you, maybe led you to say, hey, maybe we should put ourselves forward as foster parents? Well, um, foster care was, I think, just always something I felt drawn to and really curious about, but never seriously considered because I think I was just scared. Um, but last year, it just, um, foster care kept uh, coming up in circumstances around me and on my heart, on my mind. And I talked to John, my husband, and we both um, felt the same way, that it was something we wanted to learn more about because we didn't really know anything about. And we um, wanted to see if this was somewhere God was uh, wanting us to go and um, so we just started learning more Fairfax County actually has a great process in doing that so there's just an information session you go to I got to talk to Sasha and Christy which was so helpful and in learning more um, and talking to our kids John and I uh, and the kids decided to begin the process to be certified 
we are currently, um, there's classes we had to take and there's um, home studies. Um, so we're at this point mostly just waiting for approval, but it's a really long process. It's probably still a few more months, even though we've already gotten this far. Um, but it's good that it's slow because we feel unsure of ourselves. We feel ill-equipped for everything that this entails. But at the same time, um, going slowly, we've been able to take small steps and each time just ask God, like, is this still where you're leading us? Is this um, what, uh, what you have for us? And each time just kind of taking, willing to take that next step forward. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, Sasha, Christy, oh, come, come forward a little bit. We, let's not keep backing away from this mic. Um, t- tell us, maybe one of you or both of you could share just about your experience as a foster mom. Um, the good, the, the bad, the hard, the whatever, anything. Okay, so I think for us, obviously, one of the first books we read, I don't even remember the title, Corey would know, is about foster care being a roller coaster. And that analogy definitely fits. Um, we, we fostered a little girl for two days before Lucas about a little over a year ago. And both times we got the call at 11 o'clock at night, and we kind of looked at each other and said, so, we're really doing this, huh? <laughs> like, they're, like, kind of like Tatiana said, there, there were little stages of doubt in there along the process, and that was okay for us. And also, um, it, it definitely had its moments of chaos, but also... It's moments of beauty and seeing our kids and other kids love on Lucas and offering him a safe place and loving his parents and his grandparents and just being able to see God through that. And like your sermon said, and sacrificing. And it's not always about what we want, but that there's a bigger picture to that. And just seeing them for our family and offering them for him and seeing how he grew. And how he has a ton of family, and how his family gathered around him, too. It just has really been a blessing overall. Thanks, Christy. Sasha? Yeah, um, Johnny said, it will cost you, and, um, and I think it will cost us, but the gains are so much more um, than than we have given. I think we have gained so much more. And Taylor has um, slowed down our family. Um, I have three teenagers, and he's two, and he slows us down. And um, sometimes that hurts a little bit, and sometimes we just soak up the gift of going slower and reading and singing and praying and not going anywhere. So um, it's a beautiful gift. even though it costs, right? That's great. Um, If this is something you'd like to consider more about, please ask one of them. You can obviously do your own research, um, but ask one of them, ask John or Peter or Corey. Um, And if you don't feel called to foster care, that's okay too. Um, As Sasha mentioned at the beginning, one of the things that's needed is support in other ways, that if this is not something you're directly called into, maybe supporting these people or others who step into it is a part of it, as a way that we as a church, that individuals within our church or in our wider community can care for the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner and the poor. Um, I think it is part of God's calling for us. Can I pray for you guys, and would you guys join me as we pray for them? God, our Father, you are the Father of all of us and the father of the fatherless. We thank you for Lucas and for Taylor. We thank you for their life. 
We pray your hand upon them. We pray as well for these families and others who are considering foster care, that you will strengthen them and uphold them, Lord. And you will enable us as individuals and as a church to be the kind of people, the kind of church, the kind of family that cares for one another and cares for the least, including those who have no home right now and those who have no parents right now or whose home situation is broken. As you gave everything for us, may we find ways to give for you and for others in need. In Christ's name, amen.